You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, DJ Jesus 72, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, the Snarlin' Sea Dog, Hangman Strain, John, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Vanderwood, Richard, Noah, Infamous Florida Man, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Keelhaw Chris, Carcos, Sean, Rotary Coast, MD, Seth, Ghost 750X, Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefei, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, The Snarlin' Sea Dog, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time, John James, the notoriously ugly pirate, terrorized Chesapeake Bay for about a week. Then his quartermaster, Thomas Howard, called a vote, and the pirates sailed off for Africa. Today, though, we're not going to follow them. We're going to stay in and around the Chesapeake. And I've been fairly vague about the specifics of Chesapeake Bay geography, mostly because it wasn't really relevant to the story. But there are a couple of things I probably should clear up. Last time, they were operating mostly in and around Lynn Haven Bay, or the Lynn Haven Estuary. That's down on the very southern end of the bay, right at the mouth of the Chesapeake. And that's where all this stuff is taking place. You know, if you were sailing up the coast of North America, coming from Florida or Carolina, you would head west into the Chesapeake. You'd turn left, and then almost immediately, on your left, you'd find the mouth of Lynn Haven Bay. Everything up to the north, deeper into Chesapeake Bay, that doesn't really concern us here, not yet. Immediately to the west of Lynn Haven Bay, you find the mouth of the James River. If you were to sail a fair ways up the James River and wait about a hundred years, you'd find Richmond. 
but at the time, you would find Jamestown. Well, kinda. That's something else we need to mention. I've been talking about Jamestown as the capital of Virginia, and I was doing so mostly because Governor Francis Nicholson wrote Jamestown on all his letters. But they weren't actually at Jamestown anymore. Back in 1698, Jamestown had suffered a pretty terrible fire. And since that time, the government of the Virginia colony and most of the settlers of Jamestown moved inland and had been housed at the College of William and Mary. Now, William and Mary, as I'm sure you remember, was a new institution that had been paid for mostly with funds captured from the pirate captain Edward Davis. But William and Mary was on a much more pleasant piece of real estate than Jamestown. Jamestown was basically in a swamp, complete with pestilential swarms of malaria-riddled mosquitoes in the summertime. It wasn't a nice place to live. So when they began to rebuild the capital of Virginia, they didn't do so at Jamestown. They did so near the College of William and Mary, on a piece of ground that would go on to become Williamsburg. It's kind of like what's happening with Port Royal over in Jamaica. You know, Port Royal fell into the sea back in 1692, and the government and most of the people from Port Royal were now living in what we would consider today Kingston, but they still called it, for now, Port Royal. Now, John James had been a pretty serious problem for Virginia for about a week and done a fair bit of damage in his short time there. But Virginia was about to experience a rash of piracy, that would make the depredations of John James look like child's play. This is episode 320, Great Mischiefs. This piracy, this epidemic of piracy that's about to break out, is bad, but it may not actually be as bad as the sources tell us. And we've got a lot of sources about it. We have virtually everything that Governor Francis Nicholson wrote to his colonial administrators, his military leaders, and other governors in the region, as well as the Admiralty and the Lords of Trade. He wrote a lot of letters, and they were almost all saved by the College of William and Mary. But he also may have been exaggerating just a bit to make his situation seem worse than it was, because what he really wanted were better and more defenses. The only ship that Virginia had with which to defend herself was the Essex Prize, a ship that was old, undermanned, and only had 16 guns on board. And the captain of Essex Prize, John Aldred, was less than enthusiastic about, you know, going out there and doing his job. Governor Nicholson was desperate for better defenses from the royal authorities, which was the case all over the Atlantic world. It wasn't just the Chesapeake that was having a tough time. Carolina, Massachusetts, New York, Jamaica, the Bahamas, everyone needed better defenses from pirates. The home country was having trouble providing all of these better defenses, and you can really begin to see why, if you were a colonial administrator, you might decide to turn to privateers to defend your shores. But Nicholson wasn't there quite yet. Most of the piracy in Chesapeake Bay immediately after John James left was small-scale stuff, coastal raiding. You know, on one occasion, there was a canoe that carried maybe a dozen men and attacked a ranch on an island in the Chesapeake that stole five or six cows. Which was bad news for the ranchers, absolutely. 
They had to watch while the pirates slaughtered and salted their animals and then sailed away. But it's not like that was shaking Virginia to her core. Now, nobody knows who these cow thieves were, and it's possible they weren't really pirates. Maybe just a group of people who needed some beef and knew where to get it. There was another case where a ship was boarded and was ransacked, but they didn't take anything valuable, just water barrels and food stores. Which, again, may not actually have been pirates, as we understand them. You know, they were raiding at sea, so yes, guilty of piracy, but they may just have been people who were living on the knife's edge of real poverty, even starvation, and needed water and food. Because this kind of thing was happening a lot. It seems like every couple of weeks there was another raid, but it was never someone searching for profit, it was usually somebody searching for supplies. Salted fish, beer, pork, that kind of thing. But despite this, and despite the fact that everybody knew it was a real problem, the Essex Prize just couldn't do anything about it. Or maybe she wouldn't do anything about it. Every time that Governor Nicholson ordered Captain Aldred to go out on patrol, Captain Aldred just kind of didn't. Sometimes he would write back to the governor that he didn't have enough men, or maybe his hull was in disrepair, or he needed to careen the ship because she was suffering worms. And these are all legitimate complaints that were, you know, actually happening, but it was so bad that he almost never actually went out there to sail. On the rare occasion that Essex Prize did go out on patrol, she would return after just a few days. At one point, Governor Nicholson threatened to fire and court-martial Captain Aldred. Captain Aldred said, okay, fine, I'll go out there, I'll hunt down some pirates, but just a few days later he returned, saying that the winter weather had been so bad he was in danger of losing Essex Prize completely. And he wasn't, again, he's not lying about any of this. The winter of 1699-1700 was terrible, and I'm sure the weather was a real problem for his rickety old boat. But that doesn't do anything to change the fact that the pirates in Chesapeake Bay, these raiders who just kept coming, were a real, real problem for Governor Nicholson, and of course, the people who actually got robbed. Do you ever find yourself in need of a title for something, only to discover that someone else has picked the perfect title before you get there. It's infuriating. In Pirates of the Chesapeake, Donald G. Chamet titled the chapter about this period, the winter of 1699-1700, he calls it the Winter of Discontent. And it really was. The Council of Virginia, and, you know, I had to resist the urge to do a whole episode about the history of Virginia. It's all pretty interesting stuff, and there are some great rebellious, kind of anti-authoritarian trends running through the whole thing. The kind of stuff I love. But I don't want to delve too much into it. The really abbreviated version goes like this. The boom crop of the 1600s was tobacco, especially in Virginia. Smallholders in the Virginia colony could make a living, even a good living, growing tobacco on just a couple of acres. But in the 1670s, the Navigation Acts really kind of kneecapped these smallholding planters. 
It forced them to sell strictly to English merchants, which led to a glut of tobacco in English warehouses and a sudden, drastic market crash. This led to a lot of farmers losing their land, and eventually an insurrection called Bacon's Rebellion. Now, Bacon's Rebellion gets pretty dark at times. The forces of Bacon's Rebellion attacked a lot of Native American settlements, settlements that were allied with the large-holding Virginia planters. Some pretty terrible massacres took place, and then retribution happened, and more terrible massacres took place. It was a bloody affair. But this rebellion led to a kind of a culture of bottom-up politics in Virginia. The lower and middle classes tended to struggle pretty hard against the aristocratic upper classes. Eventually, this led to the formation of the Virginia House of Burgesses. A, uh, a Burgess is like a middle-class freeman. It's the English version of the German burger or the French bourgeois. By our time, about 1700, the Burgesses had amassed quite a bit of political power in Virginia. The ranks of the militia were filled with Burgesses and lower-class farmers. And when the pirates began to harass the Chesapeake Bay, and when the pirates began to harass Chesapeake Bay, it was the Burgesses that were hit the hardest. So this lower house of legislature in Virginia drafted a letter that was intended for the governor and eventually the king. It read in part, quote, Of late, many notorious robberies have been committed by pirates within this colony, whereby it appears that the dangers from those people do continually grow greater and greater. Therefore, His Majesty's most sacred council do pray that... And I'm actually going to stop it there. They spend an amazing amount of ink on useless, flowery language for the king. To paraphrase, though, they're asking the governor to write to the king about the, quote, great mischiefs and prejudices that were plaguing the colony. This was exactly what Governor Nicholson wanted. He'd been writing the Lords of Trade and Plantations for months now, begging for better defense by sea, and gotten basically nowhere. But this letter represented the people of Virginia, the Burgesses, as well as some of those larger planters. And it proved that he wasn't just some crank. You know, this was a real problem that everybody recognized. The Crown would eventually respond to this letter, but it was going to take some time. In the interim, the conflict between Governor Nicholson and Captain Aldred grew worse. The governor after yet another pirate attack, and in quite a rage, sent agents to board the Essex Prize. And what they were supposed to do isn't exactly clear, but, you know, nothing good in that case. But those agents were refused permission to board. So the governor himself came down to the docks with a party of militiamen behind him to arrest Captain Aldred for dereliction of duty. Captain Aldred, though, was barricaded inside his cabin. He said that he was very sick and probably contagious, so he couldn't open up for the good of the governor. But everybody knew that this was a lie. He was just refusing to go quietly. Now, they could break down the door, drag the captain away in chains, put him in jail, maybe execute him. Or they could just confine the captain to quarters, and that's what they did. For five days, Aldred was kept under lock and key for less than a week, but then another pirate attack happened, 
The Essex Prize was still just sitting there, her captain, in custody, and nobody could respond. So Governor Nicholson sighed, released Captain Aldred, and told him, quote, Laying aside all possible excuses and delays, with all possible speed, sail Essex Prize into Chesapeake Bay and cruise according to my former orders. I require and command you not to fail, as you answer the contrary, to your peril. End quote. He's telling Captain Aldred that if he doesn't go out there and do his job, he will be arrested and court-martialed. Captain Aldred ignored him. He had no intention of sailing out to the bay with a ship in such poor condition, and the two men found themselves at a stalemate. But winter was breaking, and with the spring came relief. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. 400 years ago, a trio of tiny kingdoms were perched on some damp islands off the coast of Europe. Within three short centuries, these islands would become the centre of an empire which ruled a quarter of the globe and on which the sun never set. I'm Samuel Hume, a historian of the British Empire, and my podcast Pax Britannica follows the people and events that built that empire into a global superpower. Listen to season one to hear about England's first attempts at empire building in Ireland, in North America and in the Caribbean, the first steps of the East India Company and the political battles between King and Parliament. Listen to season two to hear about the chaotic years of civil war, revolution and regicide which rocked the Three Kingdoms and the fledgling empire. In season three, we see how Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell ruled the powerful Commonwealth and challenged the Dutch and the Spanish for the wealth and power of the Americas and Asia. Learn the history of the British Empire by listening to Pax Britannica everywhere you find your podcasts, or go to pod.link slash pax. On 20th April, 1700, HMS Shoreham arrived. The Shoreham was an impressive ship. She was a 360-ton, 32-gun, fifth-rate ship of the line in fantastic condition. Now, a 32-gun ship could usually be classed either as a fifth-rate or a frigate, and I've seen both referred to as a man-of-war, but I think technically it should only refer to a fifth-rate ship of the line. And I know that I personally have been inconsistent about this in the past, because it can get confusing if you don't have the specifics of a ship. The difference between a fifth-rate and a frigate isn't the number of guns, but where they're placed on board a ship. 
A frigate always had her guns on the main deck, with, you know, a few smaller guns mounted on the quarterdeck and the forecastle. But a fifth-rate ship of the line, a man-of-war, had a lower gun deck that was reserved for even bigger guns. And that gun deck is what makes all the difference. They called these ships uh, double-deckers or two-deckers. Now, these distinctions weren't officially codified until the 1750s, and pirates would take any guns they could find that they were able to use. They didn't much care about those rules anyway. But the guns on that lower deck were important for ships that were not pirates. In the case of the Shoreham, there were eight demi-culverins on the gun deck, four on either side. The demi-culverin was, maybe, the most commonly used cannon for the first half of the 18th century. There were 3,400-pound guns that fired 10-pound round balls. On land, they could be drawn by a team of two horses, and they were capable of breaching a ship's hull or a castle walls with only a few shots. Now, naturally, there were much bigger guns out there, but those were usually only found in maritime situations on much larger ships of the line. On land, they would usually only be employed in major sieges because getting them to the fortress you were trying to besiege was difficult. The Demi-Culverin was the biggest, easy-to-move cannon available. But of course, we'd never see one on board a pirate ship. Sinking the ship that you were attacking was never the goal, and while they were useful for open combat, pirates wanted to avoid combat if at all possible. Pirates almost exclusively stuck to smaller bore cannon. But it made the Shoreham, and really any vessel that carried these guns, a major threat to any pirates that they might encounter. And it was the sort of thing that any pirate who spotted a ship like that would know that they carried. The Demi Culverin was a ship sinker and pirate killer. Way back in 1144, the bishop of a city in France called Saint Malo named Jean de Chatillon, made Saint-Malo a haven for those seeking asylum. Saint-Malo was a city in Brittany, in what is today northwest France, that sits on the English Channel. Now, at the time, Brittany wasn't really part of the Kingdom of France. They were an independent barony, or dukedom, depending on who was in charge, that had ties of fealty to the King of Francia, but was not part of the kingdom. But in 1144, all of that was up in the air. This was a tumultuous period in Western Europe. In England, they were going through something called the Anarchy, when multiple claimants vied for the English throne. On the continent, the Baron of Anjou was conquering land all over Normandy and Brittany and even in France. Now, in just a few years' time, all of that's going to be settled, thanks mostly to the Empress Matilda, who's going to play a key role in founding the Angevin Empire. But in 1144, it was all warfare and chaos and blood. Northwest France, which was one of the centers of chaos and blood, needed a place like Saint-Malo as a haven, a refuge for the people who were suffering. And it served admirably as such, but... Its place as a city of asylum made Saint-Malo a uh, desirable location for people on the run from the law, and its place on the channel ensured that it quickly turned into a haven for pirates, and the independent-minded in France. 
Samalo had a little revolution back in the 1590s and declared their independence from France. The slogan was, Not Breton, not French, but I am of Malo. It was Henri IV who finally corralled these rebellious tendencies, but he didn't do so by laying down the law. Instead, he issued letters of marque to the sea rovers from Saint-Malo. They were called the French Corsairs. And it actually plays an interesting role in the etymology of the word Corsair. You know, you can trace it back to ancient Latin, where it meant basically what it means today. It's another word for pirate. But it had fallen out of use almost completely until the French resurrected it thanks to the citizens of Saint-Malo. While the Dutch had the sea dogs, the French had the corsairs, and that was the word that the Spanish adopted to mean pirates, their corsarios, because the French from Saint-Malo spent so much time fighting the Spanish in the Bay of Biscay. And Saint-Malo was home to a lot of French privateers. You know, Jean Bart was one of their number. And more than a few of these privateers turned pirate. In 1699, one San Malo sloop, a privateer, abandoned their home city, sailed for Saint-Domingue, and turned pirate. They had very little success finding and capturing prizes, though. They just didn't know anything about the geography or the wind patterns. They didn't know the good shipping lanes. They were just too ignorant of the region to be very successful. And then, one night, in early 1700, a young man named Louis Guitar took his canoe out for a midnight cruise. Reportedly, he was on his way to a midnight liaison with a woman who was regrettably married. He set out from his home in Pointe Guava, but he was never going to reach that late-night liaison. He was happened upon by that pirate sloop lurking in the darkness. They overtook his canoe, scooped him up, and forced him to serve as their pilot. As it happened, Guitar was perfect for the job. He had some experience in this field, having been a privateer in the past. Thanks to Guitar, the pirates' fortunes immediately improved. They took a Dutch trader that was carrying linen and brandy over in the Leeward Islands. They impressed the surgeon into service, but released the ship and the rest of her crew. At this point, seeing as how he immediately led them to success that they had not yet seen, they elected Louis Guitar as their captain. And that surgeon, he gave Guitar some fantastic intel about a rich prize. He told the pirates that there was a ship sailing near Salt Tortuga, off the coast of Venezuela, carrying an impressively rich cargo. One of the pirates would say, later on, that the surgeon told Guitar about this ship, quote, in spite, to be revenged upon the master of the ship, who had wronged him of six or seven hundred crowns, end quote. Their little pirate sloop headed south, and they found their Dutch prize. The vessel was called Vrede, or Peace, in the Dutch, Captain Cornelius Isaac. The cargo turned out to be less impressive than the surgeon had suggested, but the ship itself was a fine prize. She was 84 feet long, 25 feet wide, 140 tons, and 28 guns. She would serve the pirates well as a flagship. Louis Guitard dubbed her the French translation of peace, La Pas. 
Guitar offered a place on board to any crewman who chose to join him from the Vrede. And if you did, willingly, but since he intended to keep both La Pa and his old sloop, he had to impress more than a few into service. One of these impressed pirates named John Hewling asked Captain Isaac to write him a ticket to declare his innocence in any piracies in which he might be forced to engage. Captain Isaac wrote him a letter that read, quote, We underwritten do declare that John Hewling is forced against his will to stay and remain upon the ship La Pa under the command of Louis Guitar, and have set our hands to witness it to ye end. Nobody should trouble him or should pretend he was there by his own consent. Cornelius Isaac With his flagship La Pa and a sloop in tow, Captain Guitar set out on a cruise of the West Indies and beyond that would eventually go on to rival some of the most notorious cruises of even the pirates of Nassau. Over the following couple of months, Guitar captured at least four different merchant ships, and every time they took one they offered the men an opportunity to join their ranks, which swelled every time. Apparently, though, the pirates took to doling out retribution against the captains of the merchant ships they took. On one occasion, where nearly everybody on board was eager to join the pirates, Guitar noticed that they were a, a lot more willing than most others to join a pirate ship. The captain was apparently a brutal man, and wound up hanged by the yardarm, while his officers were put in the ship's longboat, and set adrift. The rest of the crew from that particular prize just stayed on board and joined up with La Pa, which brings his total number of ships now to three in his growing fleet. In April 1700, Guitar spotted a 100-ton pink out of Bristol called Baltimore under a Captain John Lovejoy. They were in the waters just between the Bahamas and Florida, Guitar sent the other ships away and raised Dutch colors. He struck sail and made it look as though his ship were unable to sail, just drifting in the water. Captain Lovejoy, being a decent human being, stopped to help. Baltimore came up alongside La Pa, hailed her, and got a response in Dutch. The pirates kept up the ruse until Baltimore was right up alongside them. Then, Captain Guitar's men burst out of their hiding places and opened fire, a, a combination of both small arms and big guns. One man on board Baltimore, James Waters, was killed. The pirates leapt over the rail to board the merchant ship with their swords drawn. The crew of the Baltimore didn't even have time to respond, but even if they did, it's unlikely they would have resisted. They were a very small ship with a very small crew and no big guns on board. Louis Guitar decided that the Baltimore would make a fine addition to his collection of ships and made her part of the fleet. Now, the men were somewhere around Florida, and they had a decision to make. They could head back to the West Indies, but that was getting a little hot after their recent piracies. They could make for Africa, let the heat die down in America, and maybe steal some Muslim gold, or they could sail up the Atlantic seaboard of America. It was Captain Lovejoy of the Baltimore that decided the issue. He was questioned by the pirates, probably pretty brutally, and Lovejoy told Guitar that Chesapeake Bay was guarded only by Essex Prize, a small, 
slow ship in poor repair, hardly any defense at all. It made Chesapeake Bay and all of her rich shipping seem like a prime target. The pirates took a vote and headed north. Of course, what Lovejoy didn't know, and what the pirates therefore did not know, was that HMS Shoreham was waiting for them. Next time, we'll see what happens when an entire fleet of pirate ships comes into conflict with one Royal Naval Ship of the Line. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show, you all make it possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like Southern Gothic, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. You can find more of their work on Facebook, YouTube, Bandcamp, and anywhere else fine music is to be found. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight